Hebrews. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and errant word to our souls, minds, hearts, and affections. Let's pray. Father, so I ask again, do it. Do that otherworldly miracle in us that causes our hearts and our thoughts to pay attention to what is written. Don't let me be a barrier. Lord, let me be a conduit to see to the glory of your name. Amen. So we're this morning, before we move on to verse 4 next time, we're going to look at verse 3. We're going to look at the whole of verse 3. We're going to look at the structure of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay. In the text, in the original, in, it, it was originally written in Greek, there is only one main finite verb. Meaning, there's only one main thing that is said. And everything else is there to shed light on that one thing, that one assertion. And that main verb, that main assertion, here in verse 3, is he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everything else is there to tell us what led to his sitting down. It sheds light on why Jesus and who he is that sat down. So the way 
The way to hear what the author is saying is to translate it very stiffly or woodenly. So you should hear it. Here's, here's the grammatical flow of what he is doing. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. See, He being, or because He is, the radiance of God's glory, sat down. Because, or being, the exact imprint of His nature, He sat down. Being the one who is upholding the universe by the word of his power, he sat down. Being the one who has made purification of sins, he sat down. The author wants to, to see what is it that made it right, fitting, for Jesus to sit at the right hand of the majesty of God. And his answer is, he's the radiance, the exact imprint. He upholds everything in existence. And he made purification of sins. That's the text. Let me give you the application up front. And I'll give it again. Because there's an application here this morning. To take it. And go with it. It's what to do. And it's this. Look at the text. Which means in it, see what it says so that you can see Christ. You can see Jesus. You can behold Him where He is right now. Know it. And be strengthened and molded and deepened and changed by it. So first, let's go through it. I want you to notice there in verse 3, the connection between the work of Christ on the cross. Yes, I spent an entire sermon last week on, on that. But right now, more briefly, just again... We'll go there first, see his work on the cross, and how is that related to his sitting? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The logic is clear. Christ is seated at the right hand of God because of his atoning sacrifice. In other words, for the purpose of honoring Jesus' substitutionary, wrath-bearing work, He is exalted to the right hand of God. That's how Paul says it in Philippians 2. That's how the author, if you'll turn over there for a second again, for a moment. Chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. Hear him on it. When Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time, and He still is today, until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For, now, that for means, here's the reason. Why is He sitting? Because, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the simple clarity of the gospel. It's done. And if a human being on this earth puts their trust in Jesus Christ as the purifier of their sins, then Christ is united to them by His Spirit. And at that moment, He started a lifelong process of sanctification. That's the flow of what we just read there in chapter 10. It is those who are attached to Jesus. They're attached to the joy that He's the purifier for my sins. Those are the ones who are being changed from one degree of glory to another. Present tense, ongoing action. And as we saw, and you see again here, we saw it last week, by a single offering, past tense, He perfected those persons who are in process now. In dying for us, He covered, He washed away, He purified all of our sins so completely that every one of those persons here or in the Ukraine right now stands before God as the judge as perfect. Just as perfect is Jesus. Not because they are, but because Jesus purchased that. First, all of your guilt that was deserved is removed. Or to use the Apostle Paul's language of it, he justified you. And all of Jesus' perfect, sinless obedience as a human being to God the Father, the Father has imputed to these people put to the account of those people, and in His eyes, you're perfected for all time. You won't come into the utter experience of that until glorification. Okay, that's what He did. It's what the text says. And this is why Jesus has been ascended and seated, seated at the right hand of God of the majesty on high. His sin-bearing work, in other words, was perfect. The resurrected, ascended exaltation of Jesus at God's right hand is a declaration of His perfect sacrifice for the purification and the cleansing of our sin.
So let that form you. Let it mold you by the simple biblical reasoning. Christ reigns today in heaven because he made purification for the sins of every person who would ever cling to him and be in him. And he did it once. Secondly, there's something else in this text that Jesus does that makes him suitable for sitting at the right hand of power, authority, dominion over all at God's right hand. That's what the term means when it's, we use that term right hand. And so it's right there in verse 3. That second thing is he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, let me just translate it from the Greek woodenly. He upholding all things by the word of his power sat down. That that is it's it okay. It's not a finite verb, it's a participle. It's a verbal form in the Greek, a participle that is translated here, upholding from the word pharaoh or pharaon here in the, in, as the participle here. It means That word means bear up or to bear, to support, like a beam that supports the entire ceiling here. It's a bearing wall. He sustains it. He's sustaining, upholding, and then what? All things. And it's used in the present tense, which means it's now when he wrote it. It's now the next day when he says it. It is continuous action. Everything in the universe is sustained. Right? At this very moment. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Every atom, every molecule, the galaxies. He holds all of those scientific laws that we discover. He holds them in existence by His will. That's where it's connected to the Word. The whole point is His Word is His will. And it's the Word of His power. That person who was born of Mary in a manger. If he chose to let the law of gravity go, in an instant, <laughs> everything would be wiped out. Consider these facts about this universe that we live in. Quote, you just get this kind of stuff off the internet. Consider, for example, what Instant destruction would happen if the Earth's rotation slowed just a little. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to us, we would all burn up. If we were any farther away, we would freeze. 
Our globe is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons. If it were not so tilted, vapors from the oceans would move north and south and develop into monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land completely twice a day. After the first flooding, of course, the others would not matter as far as we are concerned. If the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper than they are, the carbon dioxide and oxygen balance of the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset and no animal or plant life could exist. If the atmosphere did not remain in its present density, but thinned out even a little, many of the meteors, which now harmlessly burn up when they hit the atmosphere, would constantly bombard us. We would have to live underground or in a meteor-proof building and on and on. How does the universe stay, at least right now, in that balance? Because Jesus sustains it. He wills it by the word of His power. Things in the universe don't just happen. They didn't come into existence in being by accident, which he said in the previous verse, right? Through whom? That is God, through Jesus, also created all of that. The universe is not the universe of the deist. Where there's a God who creates like a watchmaker and winds it up and lets it run and then has nothing else to do with it. But he is in, through, above all of it in sovereign, providential, keeping and working and acting. When we human beings, through the amazing gift of scientific discovery, run across another mind-blowing truth, all we're doing is simply discovering a few of the laws that Jesus himself designed and uses to control the universe. Entire created order hangs on the will of Jesus. The same person who made purification for your sins, believer. Think about it this way. The one who made purification for your sins and has that power, he's the one who called you. He called you to himself. He's the one that is upholding every piece of matter Molecule, atom, galaxies. He holds them all in existence and in their present state at this moment. Or you can say it this way. He's the one who made the promise to you, believer. 
in Philippians 1.6, through his sent apostle. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When Christ begins a work in a sinner's heart through new birth, he holds on to them and sustains it all the way. No wonder Jude ended his short letter with these words. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and thus to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to Him be glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Oh, we're supposed to see this. Now, I know we live in what has been called, and probably most appropriately, a post-Christian, post-deist, and theist world in the West here. And so I'm aware to say things like I just even said, Jesus Christ is upholding gravity and the galaxies and atoms. I know it sounds strange. It sounds strange to a modern scientific mind. And the reason it sounds strange even to many church-going people is because we've been absorbed in a worldview that treats matter. Material existence, human existence, as the foundational reality in the universe. What we see, what we smell, what we can touch, that's real. That's the measure of all things. It's the air we breathe. Hebrews chapter 1 calls that approach into question. The writer says the foundational reality in the created universe is not us. And it's not the universe, and it's not the matter itself. The foundational reality in the universe is Christ and His Word. Word of His power. What we in our culture think is so real is in fact extremely fragile and on the brink of extinction at any moment. One word from Christ and everything that we have ever known changes like that. Forgetting or ignoring this is precisely what defines the fallen human being in our sin. The denial of what is really real. God who made us. For the culture we live in and God purposely put us in 
for them, what could be more real than our own existence and all the things we can discover of the physical world through science? And to them, what could be more unreal than talk about some unseen person who sits on a heavenly throne. But we've been called by His mercy to see it, to know it, to live it. Why? We've been called to see more than through a microscope or a telescope. But we've been called to see reality, ultimate reality, through the Scriptures. We're called to see Christ sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God. Not only because that shows us He has completed the problem we all have, our sin, He's purified it, but also that at this very moment, He is an absolute sovereign control of every horrible, good thing. He has a plan and He has a purpose and into His hands we commit our lives because we have been promised this is not the end. Everything has meaning. And for every believer, everything is working together for your ultimate good, which is the glory of God shown to you in glorification, having lived whatever you're going through in this life. Now, it will redound there because Jesus is sitting on the throne and He purchased it. And He is sovereign over everything in your life. What a text. Now, there are two more phrases to look at in verse 3. And here's the thing about these two. They go together grammatically. They should be taken as one, as a unit. It's the beginning. Of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, just excuse me for a moment, but look, in the original, there's one participle that controls both objects. The participle is from the word to be. It's being. He's the one being, existing. As what? Radiance. Being, 
radiance. Not, not, another, not another being, just the one being. Being the radiance and exact representation. He is in His existence, in other words. Those two things. Being the radiance of God's glory and exact imprint of God's nature, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the difference between this qualification for sitting at God's right hand and the previous two we just looked at is that those two spoke about what Jesus did that qualifies Him to sit down. These two describe who He is. What He does, He upholds the universe. He's made purification for sins. But who is He? Who's the one who died for sins, is upholding the universe, who is seated at the right hand of God in a human, resurrected, glorified body? Who is He? He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. Let's look at the second one first. The term translated in the ESV, exact imprint. Okay, it's character. New American Standard Bible translates it exact representation. Okay, that's a same, this is the same Greek word that was used to make an impression or with a stamp, right? Like a signet ring of, of a king on, on the wax or on the clay. Is this, is this, you got the authentic image of that? This is that word. He's the exact imprint of his nature, of his hypostasios nature. Now, so if anyone in here ever studies church history, which you should, in the fourth century, in the Trinitarian debate, it was one of the key Greek words that they were using theologically. Okay, and we call this the, the hypostatic union. Okay, there's only one essence. It's the exact imprint of his essence, the essence of God, that man, Jesus. He's the one being referred to. Paul gives a similar illustration with a, with a different word in Colossians 1.15 when he says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible can't see him. Now you see Jesus. He is the image. He is, that's the Greek word, icon. It, there used to be a camera called an icon, right? You're taking photos. You're taking images. Did I get that right? Icon? Oh, okay. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> that end, that ruined that part. But. Well, well, an icon. We got icons. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He is the exact imprint 
of God. So follow him. He's the invisible God shown to us. Paul says he's the image of the God you can't see. He's a precise, okay, again, be careful. You have to go slowly. He's the precise copy or reproduction of God's essence. He's God's exact imprint in time and space. Oh, Philip, remember John 14? Oh, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. To see what God is like. is to see what Jesus is like. To see who Jesus is, is to see who God is. But to just now, here's here's the danger, to say it that way leaves room for people (laughs) to take it in a heretical way. In, in, in a way that the scripture does not mean, in a way that the author here does not mean, to just totally butcher it and get it wrong. In other words, if you take what has been said so far, oh yeah, he's, he, he's the image, he's the exact, exact imprint over here of this to mean something like, yeah, he's the image of God. Like a photograph is an image of that person, well, then you would totally misunderstand what he's communicating. It's not what he's saying. And that's why the other phrase is there. It's meant to protect us from a misunderstanding when he says he is the exact image or reduplication of his very essence. No, 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 no. Not like a, a photo or a painting of a person or a sculpture of a person. Uh-uh. Because we all know that's not the person. And so what does he say right before it? Here's the protection. He is the radiance of the glory. Of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Not the way a photograph represents a person, but the way the radiance of that ball of fire, the sun, is the exact imprint of the sun. Radiance means a sh- going outward, it's a shining forth, the sending forth of, of light, Christ relates to God the way radiance relates to God, shining His glory. It's one of the definitions of, of glory, of doxa. Glory, it's, it radiates. If the glory's there, it's radiating. It's not creating something, it isn't the glory. It is the glory radiating. It's the same way as the radiance 
or the rays of the sun, the way they relate to the, to the sun up there. There is no time that the sun, that ball of fire, existed apart from its radiance going forth. They can't be separated. So in that sense, though the sun is created, but since it is, at that moment, it is coexistent, the radiance with the sun. Now, God is uncreated. There's no time where it ever began. Christ has always been co-eternal with the Father. The radiance is the glory of the essence of the Son or, or, or of God radiating out. The radiance is not essentially and its essence, in other words, different or distinct from the sun itself. That we feel its radiance, and we feel its heat, and we see from its light. It's not the sun, and then there's a, something that's not the sun called its radiance. He is the radiance. The radiance is the glory itself radiating out. Word. Christ is God standing forth eternally as distinct from the Father, but not essentially different from the Father, essentially in the essence of the glory. He is the exact imprint of His nature, and therefore radiance is eternally shining forth by the glory going outward. And He has shown Himself by extending Himself outward into the creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Not created, not made. That eternal radiance was always radiating before anything was created. For example, the sun you can say, in a sense, along with water, creates those beautiful flowers blooming. Well, you say, well, look, it's not going to happen without the sun. That's true. But those blooming flowers are not the sun. They are not what the sun is. They're distinct from the suns. They're if the effect of the sun, just as Every human being who has been made in the image of God is not God. We're created by God. We're not the radiance of God Himself. He's the cause of us being, and the sun is the cause of the blooming flowers. But the rays of the sun not created by the sun, they're the extension of the sun. They're the rays, the radiance of the sun that we feel and that we enjoy is not distinct, but it is the essence of the sun. So Christ is the eternal, without beginning, 
radiance of the Father standing forth as the exact essence of His very nature. Being Godness. We all see the sun by means of the rays of the sun. They reach us. And those rays take eight seconds to get to your eyeball. So when you're standing over there at El Porto and you're watching the sunset and you're looking right at that big ball of fire, what you're seeing at that very instance actually was eight seconds ago. It's how long the radiance took to get to your eye. But what you do see is not something different than the sun. You see the image. You see the exact imprint of the sun, not because it's a photograph of the sun. That's not the same. One's a photo, one's the sun. But you see it because it is the sun itself streaming forth, radiating to you. We see God the Father by seeing His radiance in Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Back to the application. Take it. Take it with you. Take it in your daily alone prayer time. Take it in your fears about the future or the day. Take all your troubles and take this and behold. Behold Him. Behold the beauty and the power and the glory and the the merciful purifying of sins, love of Christ. Over these last three, four weeks, we have seen Jesus in all of his offices in verses 1 to 3. We have seen him as prophet and priest and king. We've seen him as prophet because he is the final spokesman. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. We have seen him as priest because he offered himself as the purification for sins once and for all. And we've seen him as king because he is absolutely Sovereign. You remember he told his apostles, 
Go. Now obey me. For all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. We have seen him here. There it is. Seated. Precisely because by the word of his power, everything is existing. He does it all because and while as a resurrected man and savior and lover and brother is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So see him, love him, cling to him. He is alive right now and sitting at the right hand of God with all authority and power delivered to him. And he has this place Precisely because He is God, the Son. He has that seat precisely because He is the one upholding everything together in existence with His will. And He has that seat, dear believer, precisely because he has come and he laid down his life and he made purification for sins on behalf of all who would ever love him. And that's why we sing and we'll sing in a moment to him who sits on the throne. Yeah. And unto the Lamb, to Him be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Oh Father, now in light of the Holy Scripture, cause these lyrics to explode in and through us in these moments that are left here together. Be glorified, O oh Lord Jesus, in our presence, our great Sovereign and King and Savior. May all honor and glory and blessing be yours forever and ever. Amen.